0: Sometimes change can feel scary, but it can also be exhilarating. A time to stretch our boundaries, embrace opportunity, and start something new. Welcome to the Baby Brunch Parenting Series, made just for you by Brightrock, the provider of the first ever needs matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. This is a Baby Brunch Podcast. Dr. Kira Knoll is a general practitioner who has recently relocated to start a new job. She has experience in pediatrics, emergency medicine, anesthetics and primary care with a special interest in holistic medicine and palliative care. A daughter was unexpectedly diagnosed with diamond black fan anemia, a rare and at times life-threatening bone marrow failure, and this was at six weeks of age. The experience of being the patient has usually reshaped her approach to individual patients and the people that they care for. Together with her husband, who's also a doctor, a specialist surgeon, they have initiated steps to improve care in the field of rare blood disorders in Africa and most importantly to provide support to others with DBA. Why did you move from Cape Town to Bloemfontein?
1: Well, my husband was offered a job uh, at the academic hospital here at Universitas, which was a good opportunity for him, setting out on a, another path in his career to get some different experience. So, yeah, that's why we decided to make the move. It was it was quite a, a big thing for us to move from Cape Town and from our from our
0: support base, but but so far it's going well. I want to talk about that again because. We, we're doing this interview for Baby Brunch on Skype, so I'm actually not seeing her. She's in Bloemfontein, and I'm here in my studio where I normally get to talk about moms who are just extraordinary and who do, who do crazy, extraordinary things like having, having a toddler who needs all our attention and then decide to relocate because we have dreams and aspirations too. Your husband's a, a specialist surgeon.
1: Mm, yes he's a general surgeon and he's specializing in hepatobiliary which is livers and pancreases and that part of the abdomen So um, it's also quite, it's quite a demanding job, quite sick patients but he's really, he's really enjoying his work here so far
0: So let's backtrack, you wanted to start a family, you've met the man of your dreams, you make a beautiful couple by the way, you do Thank you <laughs> Tell me about your pregnancy, what was your pregnancy like?
1: It was actually great, you know. We we tried for a little while to fall pregnant, so we were really excited when we when we found out I was pregnant. And you know, actually, I really I loved being pregnant. If I look back on my pregnancy very fondly. And at the time, I really felt like well, and things were going well, although it was not completely uneventful. Um, in my in my 12 week scan, I screened quite high risk for Down syndrome. So that was a bit of a fright. We did the non-invasive prenatal testing, which excluded it. We were reassured everything was going to be fine. So we got over that hurdle quite easily. And then late, a but late in the pregnancy, olive wasn't growing so well. Um, we thought it was possibly a placental problem. It could have still been. But in hindsight now, I think most of our issues were because of the fact that she had this genetic condition. Then at about 34 and a bit weeks, my granny said to me, no, look, she's really not happy with the growth. She thinks I need to stop working. So she booked me off for some bed rest she said have a chocolate every day do some fetal kicks and i thought okay good i can do it and then i went in twice a week to see her for some monitoring and actually she didn't improve uh that end of the pregnancy and we eventually we we were going to do a a kind of an elective caesar at about 35 weeks then we put it off because she did better and then i eventually went into labor just after 36 weeks so i had a caesar then she was breech but yeah you know it was like a funny it's a funny feeling to the end of your pregnancy i think especially probably for your first pregnancy there's so much hype and preparing the room and making sure everything's ready for the baby. You kind of think you've reached the, the finish line when the baby comes out and it's okay, but it's really just this beginning. And it's, it's just a, it's just a drop in the ocean, that part. And, um, but I, yeah, I enjoyed my pregnancy very much.
0: What was it like? Because, I mean, I, I I always joke with the girls and I say to them, I used to fight with my husband every Thursday, only on a Thursday because that's when I didn't feel so good. But, you know, also being the mom of a of a prem baby, I remember how hard it was coming home and not having my baby with me. When she arrived, what, what happened? So when she was born,
1: she was actually okay. She was 2.4 kgs. So she was a little bit little, but she came straight to the ward with me. Um, she didn't have to go into NICU. She breastfed like an absolute champ. And she was fine. So she came home with us after three days. And things were actually going well. And I took her for weekly weight checks. She was growing well. She was feeding well. She was really, you know, everything was perfect. She was a good baby. Then at six weeks, just before six weeks, well, yeah, it was about six weeks. She was on the weekend. She kind of just wasn't herself. I couldn't put her down. And I thought, you know, is she having reflux? She just didn't want to lie down. She was very niggly. She kind of wasn't finishing her feeds. It was kind of like for like a day. You know the Sunday, the Monday we went to see the Peel. You know I said to, you know we're like oh we're a bit worried. You know she's not quite sort of herself at the moment. So Pete took one look at her and was like oh she's so pale, um, which is also a funny thing because she was extremely pale. But you know we kind of if I look at photos of her now I think to myself oh gosh she was so pale. But you don't know any different when your baby's born. Well, and, and I think it was insidious. She be kind of became paler over those six weeks. So it wasn't like I saw her then and I saw her six weeks later. So you kind of don't notice the change so much. And I had actually, I had actually thought, look, this child's quite pale. But they can get like a physiological anemia at six weeks, you know, especially if they're a bit prim. And I thought, oh, I was trying so hard not to be the anxious mum, you know. I think everybody, I felt like everybody expected me to be quite an anxious new mum.
0: Why is that? Because you're a doctor?
1: I think partly. And I think I previously have been quite an anxious person. This is something that's quite a funny thing. I find I get much less anxious now after this whole experience. But I think kind of people, my family and friends kind of anticipated me to be a little bit of an anxious mum, you know. (laughs) And so I was really probably overcompensating um, about not being anxious. And so we were horrified when we heard that her HB was three. I mean, that's really low. It should be like fifteen for a baby that age. Um, and she was actually in heart failure, and that's why she wasn't able to lie down, it's why she wasn't able to feed. Um, and that was in the morning, because I think it was a Monday morning, and we <clears throat> we actually we saw the Pede and she said, I'm mean, gonna do the bloods, you guys go home, I'm gonna we'll phone you. And we were not even home and she phoned us and said, Grab some stuff and come back. <laughs> so we went straight back to the hospital. And just in that time in the hospital, you know, we waited. We, the PETE came back to us in the ward to do some more bloods. The one thing was to send a cross match to the blood bank for a, a blood transfusion. Already? Already, because her HP was so low, that's really the
0: only kind of treatment. So it was like an emergency transfusion, that one. Okay, so go two steps back quickly, because I've got so many questions. Was that the PETE visit that we all go to after you've given birth, they say, bring the baby back with you, you need to? Pretty much. Oh, my gosh. How long is she struggling for? So just it was it, it was
1: really just you know, I had that appointment and it was really just the day before that that she actually became symptomatic, you know. I think she probably had dropped her HB maybe in the days preceding, but she only really became ill, you know, on the day before, if I think of it now. Um, the other thing that we found on that admission was that her white cells were very low, her neutrophils, which are the the bacteria fighting kind of part of your of your immune system. And she did have a UTI. So at the time, there was a thought that maybe she got a UTI, which precipitated the whole thing. So, it might have been that, yeah, it, it might have been that she got the UTI, which kind of made her crash at the time. You know what I mean? That could have been the precipitating factor. I don't know. What is a UTI? It's a like a, a urinary tract infection, like a bladder infection. Yeah. She really, she really did quite crash quite quickly. You know, that that morning we were admitted and just waiting, waiting, waiting. She went to the general ward kind of, and then into high care. And then the Pete said, oh, I think we must move you to the neonatal ICU. So that's when we went upstairs to the neonatal ICU. And she just really just deteriorated in front of us during the course of that day. Her oxygen sats were low. She just didn't want to feed. She was completely lethargic. And um, we were holding out for the cross-matched blood. We could have given emergency blood from the fridge, but um, much better to cross-match the blood, much safer. So we waited and waited. And the evening came, eventually my husband was started phoning around phoning the blood bank they kept saying because the nurses kept saying it's on its way it's on its way then he phoned a friend at the blood bank and said listen what's going on and they said there is no O negative blood it's not on its way so we were sitting there thinking oh my goodness eventually they found a unit at Tigerburg which they sent through an adult unit Um, she needed 50 mils of blood that's all she needed two tablespoons of blood because um, she was so little, uh, but we waited ten hours
0: for that, and it was just about the longest ten hours of my life. Um, so you were you were waiting for blood to match, and none of you are a match. Both your husband, and-
1: so I am. I'm a native, but at the time it was too late to you know to go and organise that. And the other thing is with with using relatives' blood. Uh, if she, we didn't know at the time what the diagnosis was, but if in the long term she needed a a bone marrow transplant, um, which may come from a, ma- from a family member. Um, you don't want to kind of prime her to develop antibodies to that person's blood. You know what I mean? So it's it's actually preferential. There's almost a higher risk of of uh, rejection if the blood is quite similar or you know, graft-versus-host disease or whatever. So we have avoided using family members' blood.
0: Wow. So it's better for her to go through a blood transfusion route, like let's say, because in your area would have been um, Western Province Blood Service. So it would be better to get their blood than your own?
1: Exactly, yeah. So it was a stranger, I don't know, you know, somebody somebody who donated blood. So her first, her first few donations were like that. We had just random bloods, you know. So she had her first transfusion. She had another little bit of a top up the next day. We went home. Oh, so that night, this was talking about the neonatal ICU thing. So we had had her at home for six weeks. Then we couldn't stay with her in the NICU. So I went, I left. We had to leave the NICU, I think, at 10 p.m. or something. So I left, and Colin sat outside until the blood arrived, and he knew that the transfusion had started. And then he came home. And, um, yeah, that was that was weird. It's it's amazing the the space that a tiny baby takes up in your house, you know. And, um You think now is the opportunity to sleep the night through. But sure, I don't think either I slept a wink. I think I I called the NICU (laughs) kind of every couple of hours to say, how's things?
0: They were amazing, though. So that was that. What's going through your mind when you are a doctor? Your husband is a surgeon. What goes through your mind when you work with people who need your help every day and now it's your little baby that needs help? It's hard eh, because it's an awkward thing position and I know it's
1: horrible having a patient who particularly a patient whose parent or family member is a medical person because they have a different insight and you know and, and I, I know what the challenges are and I know that things take time etc cetera, etc cetera. but at the same time you kind of feel like you are in a position where you should be able to mobilize resources a little bit, you know, and it's it's quite difficult to to, to play each role individually, you know, the parent and the patient and just sit there or to try and be proactive and you know, you don't want to step on people's toes and what have you, but it's kind of... So I must say it's something that's it's tricky and that we've navigated. We've been very, very blessed um, to have all of doctors who've been really... Uh, they are easy people. They're comfortable with, with involving us in the treatment plan and our opinions, and I think they realize that for us, this is something that we think about every day. You know, Colin has read every single drop of research about down-black fat anemia, and most hematologists haven't you know what I mean because it's so rare they don't they don't see it so so I think that we've been very very blessed to have people who are have been very kind of open to working with us as the parent and as the kind of co co co-medical team which
0: has been amazing at the time she was diagnosed with something when did they know that it's diamond black fan anemia
1: so after that first admission, we came home, she had antibiotics, et cetera. Then we kind of went back for follow-up blood tests and her HP dropped again. We thought, we weren't sure at this time if it was like a viral infection or a genetic condition or leukemia. So we needed a bone marrow biopsy. Um, some people were reluctant to do it because she was still so little. They wanted to wait until she was 10 kgs or something. But I mean, I think she was like three kgs at that time. So it would have been so long to wait. So um, we found another awesome another awesome um, hematology pathologist uh, who works in private uh, in Claremont, and he said, no, he'll do it for us. So she had a bone marrow biopsy under anesthesia uh, when she was about three months old, I guess. Um, no, it was not even that old. She was probably, because it was six weeks since she got six. Yeah, it was probably a month later, so two and a half months old. And he did the bone marrow biopsy, and he was also amazing. Very, very, um, as soon as he had some kind of news for us, he kind of phoned Colin to chat about it. He wasn't sure when he looked at it. He said there was just not a single red cell, lots and lots of immature white cells. So he was. He sent the pictures to colleagues around the country as well, just to get it input because he wasn't 100% sure it wasn't a leukemia. But they decided it wasn't a leukemia, but no, no red cells at all. So... That started making the diagnosis of something like diamond black fan anemia more more likely. So explain it to us so so
0: I mean, the first time I heard about it was when I met you. I have never heard of diamond black fan anemia. I mean, let alone the word I can't even say it because it's just not it it's it's unusual is it is it common? How come most people haven't heard about it, and what is it?
1: i I had never heard of it. um I went to look it up in our hematology student hematology textbook, and there's a paragraph that's about five lines long, <laughs> so it's really not something that's that's um you know that anybody kind of thinks about yeah but it's it's basically an inherited or a congenital, not necessarily inherited red cell aplasia, which means that the bone marrow doesn't make red cells. There's been quite a lot of research over the last few decades um where they've found. A number of genes. I think there's about 14 genes that are related. So not every child has the same genetic defect, but there are a number of genes that are involved in the production of, of blood cells. And these ones that are affected result in the syndrome. And it's also very variable. Patients with, with DBA, they, some of them are only diagnosed as an adult when they have a child who's got a severe anemia. And they do genetic testing and then they discover, actually, oh, the mother's also got it, but she's been going around with an HB of 10 all her life and it hasn't really affected her. So it's very variable in its course and in its penetrance. And so it's quite like a, it's quite a broad spectrum, you know what I mean, of of a condition. But but the bottom line is that they don't make red cells. That's kind of the classic presentation of it. A lot of them have got other anatomical abnormalities like um, digital hands and, and fingers that are abnormal, heart defects, kidney problems, that kind of thing. Olive, Olive didn't have any of the anatomical abnormalities. Some of them have other immunological abnormalities like their, their um, T cells and things, uh, their immunoglobulin levels, which produces antibodies, might be affected. In Olive's case, her neutrophils are affected, so that's her white cells as well. And it seems like in her group of her specific gene deletion, those kids seem to always, almost always have a neutropenia, so I think it goes along with that gene deletion but so there's there's various other additions, but at the bottom kind of common line with all of them is that they don't make any red cells.
0: How old is olive now and where is she
1: so she's two and a half she's at home at the moment i can't believe she's two and a half we've we've got a new nanny who's looking after her so because we moved and so that was a really big challenge. I think that you know we were so we were so blessed as well with our, our nanny in Cape Town she kind of also came to us like from heaven. She was working down the road from us and my husband kind of met her in the street one day and had a chat to her and said, Oh, my wife's pregnant. We're looking for someone. So she took his number and said, I'll let you know if I have a friend or whatever. And she phoned him a few weeks later to say that the family she was working for were immigrating and she needed a new job. So she started with us just before Olive was born. So she was with us from the very beginning when Olive was well and when Olive was not well. And, um, it was amazing. After four months I went back to work after my maternity leave and um she really just got on board. I think I think at first she was a bit nervous, you know, when Olive was really so sick. But she just she just took it on and she really did so much more than probably was expected of her. She gave Olive her daily medication. She would phone me. If she was worried about anything, she used to record daily temperatures at times when she was, you know, really um, having lots of infections, and in Olive's first year, I think we spent almost 140 days in hospital. So we really were very, very blessed to have a so competent and 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 um, just willing to get involved, you know. And she really, she really made my life manageable. I would not have
0: coped without her. <laughs> what is your day-to-day life like? Like, are, are we allowed to pick her up? Is she walking? Is she talking? Is her development the same as another two and a half year old? Is she sensitive to touch? Um, is she, is she, is she like the bubble baby? You know, where where we have to keep her separate from from other children? Um, is bath time normal, or your normal?
1: Exactly. So this is the thing, you know, this is my first baby, so it's all normal <laughs> for me. But but no, it's not really normal at all. We, we've been very um, isolating her a lot, you know. We, we don't want her to get sick. We have to prevent her from getting an infection. She had a few life-threatening episodes in her first year. Something that we changed was we started adding an, a medication called Neupogen, which is a growth cell stimulating factor, which promotes production. Her, her bone marrow makes white cells. It just doesn't kind of get out there into the bloodstream. So Promotes production of neutrophils. Um, we were only giving it at times when she had an infection, but we've started giving it now about 18 months ago um, prophylactically. So she gets an injection for three days every two weeks, and that keeps her white cells at a, at a more normal level, which I think has made a big difference. Um, but other than that, we've got very strict kind of infection control measures at home, lots of hand washing. If I go out, you know, if I go to work, I come home and I change my clothes and I have a quick shower before I even pick her up because I don't want to bring all my hospital germs home. We hardly take her out. I mean, if I can I can count on my hand the times she's been grocery shopping with me, I, I really don't take her if I, unless I absolutely have to. She comes out with us, like, to walk the dogs, you know. She has a dog? Yeah, we have we have two dogs. Those were our first two children. <laughs> they were their first shame. Can she play with them? She does. You know, even that... Our dogs were really like in our beds kind of dogs before before she was born. And then when she got secure, unfortunately, we had to kind of put them out the house a bit and, and try and, you know, when she was still little and crawling, we could demarcate a space for her where they couldn't get into. That was like her room where she could play. But now that she's all over the place, it was a bit more difficult. Much, much easier now that she's walking and not crawling because she doesn't have her hands on the floor. But we just um, we try to keep, you know, we have no shoes in the house and we try to keep the house as clean as we possibly can. It's really difficult with a toddler, you know, everything goes in the mouth and whatever. But she's actually quite good and she's very, we do wash her hands a lot and she'll come to me if she's got anything on her hands for a quick hand wash, you know. She, so she is definitely sensitive. You talked about the sensitivity issues. Um, another funny thing is if I try and put her on the grass, you know, she almost always had shoes
0: on. So I think that's a two and a half year old thing. They just want to be carried still. <laughs> it's like, don't put me down. <laughs> But look, her development has been has been
1: okay. Her gross motor development has definitely been slow. She only walked, uh, started walking when she was two. Um, I think because she's just a bit pup all the time. You know, she has these spurts after a transfusion. She's so full of energy, and we I can't believe the, the growth in that week. And then for a few weeks she kind of settles down and she's a bit quieter. So I think she just hasn't got the energy to build the muscle tone that she needs. But she she's she's walking quite well now she's running around um, she's very small for her age she's still wearing like 12 to 18 month size clothes. She loves books she loves puzzles she's talking well um, so other than that she's yeah you know, she's she's like a normal toddler. How, how often does she need a transfusion? Every three to four weeks so her last transfusion was now uh, three weeks three weeks ago tomorrow so I'm gonna just start planning probably this afternoon or tomorrow I'll start planning for her next one. It's
0: quite a logistical thing. How do they do it with a baby? Because I mean, I've donated blood, and I I got a beautiful letter of how they say it's distributed and what they do with your blood. I've never received it, so is it the same procedure? She has to go into hospital and and lie down and.
1: It basically comes in a little bag, like a normal like a like a drip bag, um, and then she needs to have an IV line, so we put in a drip, um, and then. It runs in over four to five hours. It's quite a slow process. She gets 15 mils per kg, so she's getting about 150 mils now. I said to you in the I said to in the beginning she gets 100. she was getting 130. So for a pediatric blood unit, they actually when they take your blood for an adult unit is about 300 mils. They split it in half for two pediatric units. So one one blood donation can actually go to two children or or one adult basically. But um, yeah, she gets 150 mils. So we actually just get it in one bag now in an adult bag and we discard what we don't use because it it can't be reused once it's been radiated and what have you.
0: Because of your little daughter, you have now decided to help other people, other than the fact that both you and your husband are already in in the line of service where you where you work with people and where you help others. Tell me about what you've done to make and create awareness about diamond black fan anemia,
1: this was really the brainchild of my husband who uh, really sure he worked so hard when Oliver first got sick just to try to get to the diagnosis for the first thing you know there's so much research and there just on a lot of resources, and even the you know the pediatric hematology is actually managed by oncologists in this country who are cancer doctors. It's not, so it's not something that anybody's particularly an expert on that we have been able to find, you know, in South Africa. So I think we're in quite a privileged position as doctors. You know, Colin went to the literature and he read the recent articles and he got the names of the doctors who were publishing these things and he emailed them and he said, look, I need to discuss with you about a patient with diamond black fan anemia. And we were actually so um, amazed at the, at, the, at the wonderful response. So we had uh, several doctors, three or four doctors in the States and another doctor in the UK who were willing to Skype call with us and give us their opinions and advise us on further investigations and what we should do further. We met uh, a, a doctor in at Boston uh, in the States, Professor Colin Seif who is actually an ex-South African and we actually met him he came out of South Africa and he's been amazing um, support to us. He'll Skype Colin any day if he has a question. Um, lots of advice. So it was quite a struggle, though, even, you know, for us as doctor parents to kind of make sure we were doing the right thing for our child. It was quite difficult to get that information. So his kind of dream was to put it together so that it's accessible in our setting. You know, what blood investigations should we do? How should we be managing it? How should we be in transfusing? Because transfusion medicine is just a thing on its own. You know, there's different types of blood you can give. There's different ways of pre-treating the blood different volume you know thinking about how much are you giving and how often and those kinds of things are not necessarily that it's kind of like it's a bit of finesse you know to try and know exactly for this child what's the best thing to do so he put together kind of a a protocol which he drew from the american-based protocol and other research that he found and then he felt you know we need to do something with this so so he he his initial kind of goal was to create a portal more for, for doctors and healthcare providers and patients where they can access information and kind of get it like a bit of a hotline to an expert when it's something that you don't really know about and from that has also grown off our, our, our frustration in terms of the actual treatment you know this for us is a very frequent event um, and every time it's the same story you go to the hospital and you're gonna fill in that whole form are there any allergies do you have this do you have that have you been in the hospital for? yes several times you know so our kind of chatting about our kind of our wish was we wish there was a place we could just go, which was like a little home away from home, like just an infusion center, nice and easy, pop up, your everything sorted out beforehand, you know, everybody knows you, pop up your drip, have your blood and you go home, like a day hospital kind of setting for a stable patient. So we started doing a bit of research into that. And that's kind of our, our ultimate goal is to create that kind of a space, because not just for children with diamond black fan anemia, because yeah, there's not that many, but there are lots of similar conditions where children have chronic blood transfusions or chronic infusions or injections or something where they have to be in hospital for a few hours. And it it takes it takes a whole day. You know, for me, I miss a day of work. I've had to take unpaid leave for both of these last two years, in spite of how generous all my employees have been with, you know, helping me out when needed. Because it's kind of fifteen transfusions. that's fifteen hospital days just for her transfusions. So if there's any other days where she's not well, you know, to take out of that. Um, as she gets bigger, it's going to take out of her school day, you know, or whatever. So to try and kind of streamline it, so that was kind of our goal, was this, this infusion clinic. So then we started our foundation, which we've called the Olive Children's Foundation, which kind of encompasses the whole lot. So it's really like creating a space, a doctor's portal, a more academic center where we've, we're have we trying to put together a registry of patients. Uh, having a registry just helps you to collate the data to motivate for for resources and protocols and to medical aids and stuff. If you can say, look, this is the need, then... So we were trying to put a registry together. We were trying to just be a bit of a support, um, a resource, having access to discuss with these experts overseas if um, somebody else would like a second opinion, you know, um, and then ultimately raising funds towards uh, the development of this transfusion clinic and, and just creating awareness and particularly about stuff like blood donation. I, I've, I've been quite amazed at how the general public, there's a, there's a, a percentage of people who donate blood. And there's a percentage of people who don't even know anything about it. You know, there's, there's a lot you can do for free you know, to help other people. And um, so just trying to you know, recruit people, educate people about issues around do- organ and
0: blood donation as well. This has been, this has been a life-changing moment for you. Not just having a baby, but having having Olive. Yeah. How has this changed your life, and also how has this changed your life as a doctor? Let me answer the second part of your question first. I think I always like
1: a compassionate doctor, but just it really has just changed my my my. I know how it feels from the other side. Do you know what I mean? So you can be kind and caring to somebody, but knowing that how inconvenient it is to be admitted in hospital, or the other challenges, how how it interrupts your daily life, or just other things that you might be feeling, you know, I think it's made me a lot more um, kind of empathetic towards my patient. It's really changed the way I also see medical care, you know, it's not just about here's a prescription, you know, it's about explaining this is how you take your prescription, you know what I mean, or whatever, just so that the person knows, because you don't, always take everything in at the first time either when someone's telling you stuff you get home you think oh what is i supposed to do with this thing now you know sounds familiar <laughs> yeah so just just trying to engage with people on a more kind of personal level i think is 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 the big thing for me um i've definitely struggled a bit more with peds i used to love peds um but since i had a baby i've definitely struggled a bit more with it because i, I do get a little bit more emotional about it so i, I um i found that a bit difficult but but, you yeah, know, it's, it's actually been, I think it's been a good experience for me as a doctor to be just a bit more compassionate about how this affects you and your circle, you know. As a mom, it's it's funny, you know, I, you know, the thing is, you people think, sure, I can't, I don't know how you've coped with this, but you actually have to. And I think that moms do, you know. And dads and grannies, you know, they, they think you think you can't cope with it, but you can always cope with it because you just have to for this little kid. You know, I've had times where I have thought, oh my gosh, this is just the worst. But then I think, look at Olive, she's actually the one who has to go through it, and she is. So we've all just got to get on board. You know, it's it's become our normal now, and it's, it's a routine. It took a bit of time to get into a routine. Um, I still hate it as the transfusion day looms. I think, oh, I should do this again, but but it's just it's it's just part of our. Our day to day life, and I think it's made me a lot more it's 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 given me such a different perspective on life in general, you know you can really fret about stuff like i don't even know what are they eating and can they cross the midline with their hands or are they sleeping right? Should I be sleep training her? Should I be putting her on solids? Can she have dairy? you know you can really stress about stuff like that or not you know and i it's just it's amazing how with a bit of perspective your the things that you worry about you just don't kind of sweat the small stuff so yeah, I think that's changed me a lot I've, I've in a in a weird way I have become a much less anxious person because things don't worry me as much as they used to because it's not worth worrying about those things you know what I mean <laughs> yeah. well exactly you know I if it's not like a life and death issue I actually am not going to worry about it you know so so yeah it's it's definitely it's it's definitely changed my perspective on on life in general but it's it's been a good it's been a good experience for me in the uh, in the in the long
0: run you know but it's yeah have you met other mommies with children with diamond black femme anemia
1: mm actually amazingly we met a a, a young girl um in Bloemfontein just after we we arrived she's actually um a young adult in her 20s, and I met her parents. And that's we, – we we've met another girl similar age in Cape Town and another little girl who's about two years older than Olive. It's so inspirational to see them, and it's so – it's kind of like, you know, they're, they're not people that we've known before, but you see them and you think immediately, you know, you have this huge thing in common, and you know exactly what the other person's life is like. And it's quite – it's quite – um encouraging you know to see how they've been carrying on especially the parents of these of these older girls you know because at the time when their kiddies were little and sick and diagnosed there was even less known about it the medication for example that olive takes um, to help to get rid of her extra excess iron because of her transfusions that's kind of only been available for the last sort of 20 something years you know it was still experimental at the time when their little ones needed it so um, they've been through a lot more in many ways than we have and so it's it's quite encouraging you know to chat and see them, but on the other on the other hand, you know, there's a big international community um, with DBA. Uh, there's kind of a big support group, so I've been in contact via social media with with some of those parents. On the other hand, it's sometimes it's it's too much because some of the kids don't do well. Recently, there's actually been a few really really sad things. There was a little boy, same age as Olive, who died in the middle of February, um, and that kind of thing is really like it kind of you don't know them at all but you just feel like oh it's a huge loss you know it can also be quite quite hard to to see them all struggling you know because it could be any of us but definitely we encourage each other i think and and give each other good support and advice and i think that's what we would like to create locally you know as part of our foundation just to be able to be there for each other
0: you know do do children with this kind of anemia have a life expectancy
1: it's it's also very variable, you know. When we when when she was first diagnosed, we kind of researched a little bit, and we kind of found like for Oliver's particular condition, it was like about four years old. But I think it's it's so dependent on the treatment and complications. You know, at the moment, she gets blood transfusions frequently, so that's not without risk. She is at risk of developing iron overload, which deposits iron in the liver and the pancreas and the heart, which can cause liver, heart, pancreas failure. Um, so she takes medication daily to keep that under control and at the moment it's under control but that medication that she takes can also cause deafness and blindness and renal failure so if she starts complicating from her medication that we can't give her that medication then it means that we start struggling with blood transfusions you know if everything goes well then they can live on into adulthood and many of them do some of these children are are on steroids they take various doses of steroids as low as possible. Some of them, uh, when they take, start taking steroids, it kind of kickstarts the bone marrow to produce some red cells. Olive has had two steroid trials, when she was one when she was two, and there was no improvement. So we think she has a non-steroid responsive form of DBA. Ultimately, at the moment, the only kind of cure for the bone marrow failure is a stem cell transplant, where they subject the patient to chemotherapy, which kind of nukes out their entire immune system and then give them someone else's stem cells or bone marrow to repopulate their bone marrow and produce healthy cells. So it's also a very high-risk procedure, you know, um, because they also get complications of the medication that they have to take for the transplant. They get infections with, like, a flu or a cold or something very minor, and it just knocks them out because they've got no immune system. So it's a very high-risk procedure, not something that you would want to undertake unless you don't really have an option, you know. Like, for example, if you are not able to get your iron under control or whatever. There's some research. It's also very experimental um, on gene therapy. So it hasn't been done in a patient with DBA before. that's another one of Colin's passions. He's trying to see where he can get someone to do some research on gene therapy in DBA. There's been some human trials done now in sickle cell anemia and other, other bigger, more common conditions. But that would essentially be curative of the syndrome as a whole because it would repair the gene deletion. So... That's kind of the only ultimate cure. But as I say, still very experimental. We don't know what the long-term effects of that would be. So at this stage, it's, it's really variable. They can die all of a sudden from something like an infection or a complication, or they can go on to live quite a normal, relatively normal, healthy life you know, into adulthood. Yeah.
0: What gets you going every morning? How do you know that everything's gonna be fine? You I've met you and you're even though I can't see you today and you're far away in Bloemfontein and I'm sitting this side. What keeps you positive every single day? How do you how do you stay up?
1: Olive is just about the happiest person I've ever met. You know, she's always been a happy baby. She 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 like when she has her drip put in, she cries while they're putting the drip. She doesn't put it on where she cries, cries, cries. When it's in, she knows it's in and she gives everyone a high five and she's happy. She is, she wakes up in the morning with such a big smile on her face that like, I can't not be, you know what I mean? My husband is also amazing. He's such a go getter person. He works so hard all the time. He's always got something on the go work his, his own work, which is a completely different line of work as well as the DBA work, as well as family stuff. So, you know, it's kind of like a, you kind of, you have to do it for them. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's easy to do it because that's what's happening in our household do you know what I mean everybody's everybody's just taking it by the horns and we're just going with it and um yeah we just try and have to keep it as keep things as happy and as kind of positive as we possibly can because there's no there is no point in moping about it you know it is what it is and we've 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 got to do it and we've got to try and also enjoy our lives and be happy and make the most of our lives you know what I mean so we kind of yeah,
0: we just get on with it. <laughs> Where can we learn more about the foundation that you have created?
1: So we have a website, www.olivechildrensfoundation.org. And we also have a Facebook page, and we'd love you to follow us on Facebook. We post we post all of our, our recent kind of blogs and updates on the website as well on our Facebook page. So that's probably the best place to start. And you please feel free to email us or send us an inbox message if you want more info or Wanna find out, you know, what are we doing and and what's how people can get involved or whatever, yeah. Would you have another baby? We'd like to, yeah. We've both always wanted a big family, so so it's it's it is it's our plan. We'd like to have another baby. It's I'm nervous about it. Not just not because of anything except I'm like, Oh, this one just got a little bit independent. Now I don't really want a newborn, but <laughs> but um but no, we definitely we definitely do.
0: Yeah. You know, I listened to your story and 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 having met you and heard your husband speak and and seen olive's pictures i just i'm so glad that you you are her mom i'm just I'm so glad that you are her mom and that your husband is her dad because you you're not just helping your own baby but you're helping so many other people you know
1: mm. no i'm also I'm also happy that we are her mom and dad because she she's she's an awesome kid and I and I feel like we can it's difficult because I'm not I'm always on the fence about our personal life sharing our personal life too much but but it's it's important and we can make a difference you know and maybe a hundred years from now something that we did will have paved the way for for an easier path for people you know with the same thing
0: so I can tell you that 10 minutes after this podcast, you've done something for someone out there. It doesn't have to be 100 years because you're doing phenomenal, phenomenal work. I am so encouraged and inspired by what you do and how you're sharing your story. And thank you so much for motivating moms and moms-to-be and dads. And we will. We'll put up your information on our websites and we'll spread the news. And we wish you only the best. Many blessings and prayers and good health living with Olive.
1: Thank you so much, Alana, and thanks so much for having me. I've really enjoyed chatting with you, and it's, it's been great.
0: For more inspirational stories, babybrunch.co.za. Click on our podcasts and listen to other ordinary moms who are sharing their extraordinary stories of how they're changing the world bit by bit. You, you that's changing the world. Baby Brunch is made just for you by Brightrock. Becoming a parent changes everything, from your sleep schedule to your finances. That's why BrightRock's Needs Match Life Insurance lets you precisely craft a solution to cover your specific needs. From protecting your income to covering your debts and your child's future. Because you pay just for the cover you need, you can get up to 40% more cover. So get the first ever Needs matched Life Insurance that changes as your life changes. Go to brightrock.co.za Brightrock Life is an authorized financial services provider and registered insurer. Terms and conditions apply.